The first thing to say on the on the question of his management is he was allowed a huge amount of leeway. All the money, it seems, was concentrated in his hands. There was no audits done. Typically, if you own, if you control a center and you're based on donations, you have to fill out a mountain of papers every year, accounting for where the money went. What did you accomplish? What did you achieve? What are your plans? Uh, it's not easy. You're usually under very close scrutiny. In his case, it seems that there was no audit done on the monies. There was no oversight. There wasn't even a board of overseers. Uh, everything was concentrated in his hands. And one has to add to that. He had no record as an administrator. He was um, literally scooped up off the street and put in this very prominent, high-profile position with no known expertise, no track record in administration. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Artifact. I am joined by Professor Norman Finkelstein. He's the author of books such as Beyond Chutzpah on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, most recently, he's the author of I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. It's a book that focuses on things like wokeness and political correctness, academic freedom, questions of legality, such as uh, he covers the Roe v. Wade decision of last year quite prominently in the text. And today we're going to discuss one of the chapters in his book on the work of Ibram X. Kendi. And I think this is very topical now because Kendi is in the news. He's recently uh, on the cusp, if not of a cancellation, perhaps a, a pretty significant blow to his reputation. I think uh, if you followed Kendi's work, you should have seen at least some of this coming. So back in 2020, he received about $10 million from uh, the ex-CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Uh, it seems uh, in total, the center was working with something like 30 to up to over $40 million. Uh, when he founded his anti-racist center at BU, there's accusations that there was bullying. Uh, lots of uh, workers were leveling all kinds of complaints starting as early as 2020 and 2021. They were complaining that research was not actually getting done. Nothing was actually happening. They were wondering, well, where's all this money going? Because it seems like nothing is truly coming out. Different people, I guess, associated with BU, they basically leveled the accusation that this, this anti-racist center was more or less a way for BU to whitewash its own racial problems. And if you read Norman Finkelstein's book, you will see that this is where he's kind of going with some of his critique. For instance, BU has, I believe, a black acceptance rate. They have about something like 4.8% of the students are black, uh, over 3,000 faculty members, 
And yet something like 71 are black women, only seven of them are tenure track professors. So, I mean, it's it's a huge mess. Um, Kendi, for his part, his response is more or less along the lines of, well, black leaders in the past have always had their decision-making skills second-guessed, and this is what's going on here. So I wonder if we could just start, uh, Norman, with your responses to the recent accusations. I would want to begin by making what to my mind is a critical distinction, and that is Abram X. Kendi as an administrator or executive director of the so-called Anti-Racism Center, and Abram X. Kendi as a scholar, as an academic. It happens that that distinction works neatly because Kendi holds two positions. He's the Andrew Mellon uh, Professor of the Humanities in Boston University, so he holds an academic position, and he's the director of the so-called Anti-Racism Center, so he's also a head administrator. Right now, all of the attention has been focused on the second of his so-called, if you want to call it, second of his identities, namely as the executive director. And the claim has been made that he's, at the very least, at the very least, he's uh, culpable for gross mismanagement of the monies that were uh, donated to the center. The estimates I've read, most recent estimates, run between 40-something and 50-something million dollars. Um, they still maintain an endowment, that center of about 17 million, which means roughly maybe approximately 25 to 30 uh, uh, million are MIA, missing in action, or in this case, missing in inaction, uh, because there doesn't seem to have been any substantive result from this investment. So, <clears throat> Having made that distinction, uh, the first thing to say on the, on the question of his management is he was allowed a huge amount of leeway. All the money, it seems, was concentrated in his hands. There was no uh, audits done. Typically, if you own, if you control a center, and you're based on donations, you have to fill out a mountain of papers every year accounting for where the money went, what did you accomplish, what did you achieve, what are your plans? Uh, it's not easy to uh, administrate in a, in a center or foundation. You're usually under very close scrutiny. In his case, it seems that there was no audit done on the monies. There was no oversight. There wasn't even a board of overseers. Uh, everything was concentrated in his hands. And one has to add to that, he had no record as an administrator. He was um, literally scooped up off the street and put in this very prominent, high-profile position 
with no known expertise, no track record in administration. And um, I know from personal correspondence with people at the center over the past several years that there was a scandal brewing from pretty much the get-go. People were writing me because they knew I had criticized not his management skills, but his scholarship. And I did say along the way that he was a charlatan and a hustler. And so people were writing me, uh, actually, one of the persons who stepped forward in the most recent controversy was a correspondent of mine. And this person sent very long emails with very detailed descriptions of what was not happening, describing what was not happening at the center because nothing was happening, except for the fact that Mr. Kendi was using the center as a vehicle to promote his books. So the only substantive undertaking, so far as anyone can tell, was his national anti-racism book fair, which occurred every year. And you can imagine the book fair was just a instrument or vehicle to showcase his so-called books. Uh, on that subject, I'm going to just speak for a half moment, and then we'll move on to what, in my mind, is the more important question, namely, Kendi as a scholar. And this will be a segue to Kendi as a scholar. So if you look at Kendi's current resume, he describes himself as having written 15 books. Now, that's quite an achievement, bearing in mind that his first or his second published book was two years ago, namely, uh, well, what year did Stamp from the Beginning come out? Uh, that must have been, I think it was before 2019, and 2019 was how to be an anti-racist, okay, so, so it's probably know, longer than that, yeah. Right, so we're talking about 15 books in a very short period of time. Now, I remember an incident where one summer I went to spend a few days with Professor Chomsky, in his summer home. And when I came home, a close friend of mine said, so what is Professor Chomsky up to? And I said, he finished two books. So my friend replied, big deal. I read two books this summer also. Well, I thought to myself, that's what distinguishes Professor Chomsky from other mortal men. He wrote two books in the summer, and most of us are pleased if we've read two books in the summer. But now comes along uh, Ibram X. Kendi, and he's written roughly a little more than the summer, we can put it that way. He's said to read, have written 15 books. Yes, it's true. There are 15 books with his name affixed on them. So what are these books? One book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. Another is How to Be an Anti-Racist Baby. And then you go down How to Be an Anti-Racist Toilet Seat. And How to Be an Anti-Racist Toothpick. And How to Be an Anti-Racist Lamp. 
and how to be an anti-racist keyboard. He took one book. He's still, still in the midst of spin-offs. I think there's another, another spin-off coming out. And this is called Writing 15 Books. And that brings us to the second half of his, as it were, identity, since we're in the world of identity politics. That's the identity as a scholar. Now, to my thinking, but this may be uh, because of my own vocation in life, what's more scandalous is not what he did as a, a mismanager, apparently a mismanager, but the claims he makes to being a scholar, and what's a 10,000 times worse, the fact that these claims never came under any public criticism or scrutiny, except from the right wing. The right wing, there have been several critiques of him. I wouldn't call them substantial because I don't think anyone really read the book. Uh, that's not an unusual phenomenon in the world of American arts and letters, where books <clears throat> reach the top of the bestseller list, but they're coffee table items. In this case, it's a coffee table item to show off how woke you are. So you prominently display it as woke bookstores now are wont to do. You could say maybe he made it as a scholar, or at least he got some credibility. You could say maybe because his book was published by a high-profile publisher. That's possible. A Random House book, a um, Penguin book, a Harvard University book. Yes, that's a, it's an automatic. It gives you a kind of credibility. Whether it's deserved or not, I'll leave aside, but it does. But his book came out from Nation Books. Nation Books is just a tiny little outfit, uh, rink-a-ding outfit. No offense, because I mostly publish by those kinds of publishers, but that's not going to get me any kind of public acclaim unless there's something really stellar in the book. So then you could say, well, maybe it's his academic pedigree. You know, if you got a Harvard degree, you got a Columbia degree, uh, that's going to open doors. It does. Maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's not right. But it does. But his um, degree, he got his college degree from Florida A&M, historically black college, HBCU. And then he got his PhD from Temple University. And he studied under what's called an Afrocentric, this guy named Asante, who's frankly raving mad. Um, so those kinds of degrees, they don't open doors. So then you ask yourself, what's going on here? He doesn't have this stellar academic pedigree. He doesn't have an outstanding publisher. He has no uh, administrative training. How did he land? these two plum positions. He is the Andrew Mellon Professor of the Humanities. Do you know what, speaking as an academic, that is top tier. You know, most people start out 
as adjuncts. They get paid per semester. And he was catapulted to Andrew Mellon, professor of the humanities. He probably gets paid for that position somewhere in the order of $300,000 a year. Then he gets the uh, directorship of the Anti-Racism Center, for which I know because it's public knowledge, he gets paid $480,000 a year for somebody with no record. Now it's true, he won the National Book Award and he was the youngest recipient ever of the National Book Award. And then that brings us to the question, how did that come to pass? What is in this amazing book stamped from the beginning? What is in it that should have resulted in such fantastical... Listen, I'm an academic. Believe me. Even if I managed to get tenure, which I did not, it is a very painful, anguishing process. You know, any professor, even the best professor, during that 10-year process is so closely scrutinized. No, I'm serious. You have to go jump through so many hoops to get tenure. It's a very degrading and demeaning process. Because you basically, beyond having to be very productive, you really do. You have to publish at least two books uh, and so forth with good publishers. Um, it's a very grueling process. Jumping through those hoops, I didn't manage. He, no tenure process, nothing. He's catapulted to the most, the highest position. The Andrew Mellon Professor of the Humanities. How did that happen? It had to have been something utterly brilliant in this book. That's the only explanation. So as an undertaking, I noticed there were some right-wing criticisms of his book, but they were pretty superficial, I would say. Nobody had actually undertaken to parse the scholarship. What's there? And that's what I did. Now, I will admit what I produced was very long and tedious. It's 110 pages. Yes, it's very tedious. I, I am the first one to acknowledge it. But I felt the reason it's tedious is because I felt nobody else had done it. Nobody, this book made a spectacular career. It's like Darwin's on the origin of the species. <laughs> so what's in it? And it was quite a revelation to discover that there was nothing in it. It was just name calling. It was attaching the label racist or anti-racist to every exemplary figure in African-American history with virtually all of them, be it the colonial America figure, Phyllis Wheatley, the poet, be it Frederick Douglass, be it um, Richard Wright, or 
to add insult to injury, if I might use that expression, all the abolitionists, those heroic figures like Wendell Phillips, Charles Sumner, William Lloyd Garrison, all, all of those African-American white, tiny number of white people, but truly heroic figures, they're all labeled racist. They're all labeled racist. Who are the anti-racists, okay? The anti-racists can fit on the fingers of one hand. Zora Neale Hurston, anti-racist. Eldridge Cleaver, anti-racist. Malcolm X, anti-racist. Angela Davis, anti-racist. Kanye West, anti-racist. That's it. Everybody else is a racist. Let me just so, ask you, let me ask you about that as a kind of meta question. Um, do you think there's any kind of value in a book that goes back through history and tries to extract every uh, more or less example that one can find going back like thousands of years of racist thought? Because to me, uh, I've always just been under the assumption, for instance, that if you go back to you know pretty much any thinker you know other than modern day people, you're going to find racist material simply because that's just how everybody thought. If no, you go I don't think that's I don't think that's exactly true, because there are many examples of people who actually didn't think that way. So you take the case of the time of the discovery. There were always critics of slavery around who knew mm -hmm. it was wrong. As a matter of fact, the British like to heap ridicule and mockery on the Re American revolutionaries talking about freedom and then cracking the whip on their slaves. But I mean, ge but, but, but generally speaking, oh, like I if you... to disconnect my phone. Excuse me for me. Okay. Not to disconnect the phone. Okay, go ahead. But generally speaking, uh, I, you know, I, yes, of course, uh, uh, exceptions exist even in the time of uh, um, Rome, for instance, right? You have people like Seneca criticizing not so much slavery, which was a bridge too far for him, but the kind oh, of... Just by the way, the, the name is De Las, De Las Casas. De La, okay. De La Casas. Yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, like Seneca, for instance, he criticized uh, not so much slavery, but the specific kind of slavery that was practiced. You will find examples of, of people saying what Kendi might... might let, me, let me just finish, like right. saying like anti-racist uh, things. But at the same time, if you, if you put all the famous people, right, in history and you put their names in a hat, most likely if you pull some uh, name out, you will find, if not a controlling factor for their lives, at least a stray comment or something that would indicate, yeah, this, this person probably had uh, racist thoughts. Look, I have no, look, we're all, as Cornell West likes to say, Dr. West likes to say, we're all come out of our mother's wombs, cracked vessels. So they're always going to be imperfections. Now, there are two things I would say in this matter. Number one, I do think it's useful if we show, if we demonstrate that people who are depicted as perfect vessels are then shown to be imperfect vessels. You might call it muckraking, and, but muckraking does serve a purpose, I think. It was very useful for me growing up when I started to read Professor Chomsky's works and he started to quote remarks by all sorts of 
exalted historical figures which show them to be very imperfect. Now, so that's a useful, in my opinion, that's a useful exercise. What's not particularly useful is, is if that's the be all and end all. You know, mm -hmm. we have to carry on exactly assessment and evaluation of a human being. Martin Luther King, as a person, and he was the first one to acknowledge it to himself, Martin Luther King was an imperfect human being, as was Gandhi. Um, does that negate their historical achievements? And number two, does it really add very much once you acknowledge a person has an imperfection here, or imperfections, plural, once you acknowledge that, then does it add anything to affix these labels on them and just call them racist? Does that add anything? I don't think so. I don't think it adds anything. You'll never hear me call somebody a fascist because I don't find that the label is particularly illuminating. As a matter of fact, recently I wrote a long article saying I don't see the purpose of describing the threat that Donald Trump presents. You could say he presents an authoritarian threat. I think so. He presents a, uh, a threat of political repression. But I said, if you look historically at what the term fascist meant, it doesn't really have much relevance to the Donald Trump phenomenon. And I would say the same thing with racist. Long before Ibram X. Kennedy came Henry in. Rogers. Right. <laughs> Whatever. Um, long before he came along, we all knew that there were significant imperfections in Abraham Lincoln. Okay? Abraham Lincoln didn't believe that black and white people can coexist together in the same territory. Abraham Lincoln believed in colonization. There are many things you could say about Abraham Lincoln. On the other hand, is that the beginning, the middle, and the end of Abraham Lincoln? Uh, I think the best, the best historical assessment of Abraham Lincoln came from the pen of Frederick Douglass. At one point, African Americans under uh, Douglass's initiative decided that they were on their own going to dedicate a monument to him. And on the occasion of the setting of the monument, or erected, however, on that occasion, he wrote this absolutely brilliant assessment of Lincoln, in which he starts out by saying, it's true, Lincoln was a white man's president. We shouldn't fool ourselves about that. His first concern was white people. And he starts off with all the limits on Lincoln's greatness, and then he proceeds to describe a great man. He proceeds to describe in the annals of history a great, great man. And that's what a historian does. And then the historian at the end, he or she then weighs the good and the bad, how the good interacts with the bad, 
how the bad interacts with the good. That's called an old-fashioned Marxist talk that was called a dialectical analysis, and then reaches a historical judgment. I remember when I read Joaquin Fess, uh, the German historian, he wrote the first great biography of Hitler. And at the end of it, he had to come to an assessment, which is very strange to my ear, very strange. Was Hitler a great man? Was Hitler a great man? Uh, that's what, with any towering historical figure, that's the job of historian. Did Joachim Fest limit himself to saying, well, Hitler was a Nazi, but we already knew that. <laughs> Hitler was a fascist, well, we already knew that. Uh, the real struggle is trying to make an assessment of a person in his, his or her good and bad within the context of the times, but always being careful about this notion of context of the times. Because you take the case of Teddy Roosevelt. He wrote the most absolutely hideous things about Native Americans. I mean, it literally could have been Mein Kampf. It really could have. It's just ghastly. Um, and he had a contemporary. Her name was Helen Hunt Jackson. Helen Hunt Jackson was a notable writer. And she wrote a book called A Century of Dishonor, describing what was done to the Native Americans. A very powerful book. And Roosevelt was not happy with that book. And he devotes quite a lot of space to denouncing her and denouncing the book. My point being, there were contemporaries who knew what was being done to the Native Americans was horrible. Roosevelt was aware of those contemporaries. So we have to always be careful about using this extenuation this moral extenuation of, well, you have to understand the times. And that's, that's true of the left. You see, let's be clear about that. That's true of the left. I have, I've known many wonderful human beings, wonderful human beings, who were outright apologists for Stalin. When my first mentor, my dear friend, he wasn't really a friend. My dear mentor, uh, Paul Sweezy, the great uh, Marxist economist, the greatest of his generation. The Martha, the Martha Review economist? Yes. yes. Um, Harvard educated, brilliant guy, brilliant guy. Um, but he was a complete apologist for Stone. And I once asked him, well, Paul, how do you feel in light of the history, in light of what's been revealed? And he said to me, Norman, you have to understand the times. You have to understand the times. And in part, there's truth to that, the feeling that there was only two choices between the Nazis and those who were playing the overwhelming role in defeating the Nazis, namely the Red Army. So in part, there's an argument, but also when Joseph Stalin died, Paul Sweezy wrote in Monthly Review, his magazine, the magazine that he edited, he wrote, quote, there is no doubt that Joseph Stalin will go down 
in history as one of the great revolutionaries. And when I read that in the 1970s, I, my heart sank. I was so disappointed, which is to say, when he wrote that, and when Stalin died, I guess Stalin died in 1953, mm -hmm. it was already very well known what he had done. The war was over, so the argument about you have to understand the times. So uh, one has to be, I think, cautious about using this argument about the times. Um, and I would say, Handy's book doesn't do any of that. I, I read the book very carefully. All I saw was the, the promiscuous flinging of labels on people, no analysis, no attempt to uh, do what a historian does. To uh, comment on some of the things you just said, so first of all, on the question of greatness, I think it's very useful for people to, because like I think in most people's minds, the word good and great could be somehow synonymous, but I think it's probably more useful to view greatness as a totally amoral quality, right? You could have a kind of greatness in something that's just like totally evil, right, and unjustifiable in the kinds of ways that we think about the world. Um, you could have greatness that go, you know, artistic greatness that breaks in a totally different direction. Specifically in the case of Stalin, I'm always uh, amused by Westerners that have these like very positive views of of uh, figures like Stalin. But at the same time, I'm also very aware, right, being from Belarus and my family being from Russia, right. My great grandmother, she absolutely loved Stalin to the day that she died. She was so did my mother and father. And, and, you know, part, well, specifically with your parents being Holocaust survivors, right? That would be a part of it. My great grandmother, she remembers uh, uh, essentially hiding out, having absolutely nothing to eat. She would tell me things like, I can't believe that uh, I never thought there would be a day when I could see a piece of bread on the table and not want to eat it and eat the whole thing right away. That's how hungry she was during World War II. So, in her mind, being, you know, somebody that's essentially a peasant, she had, you know, the pre-war and the post-war experience. The central figure there is going to be Stalin. Guess what? That's going to bring Stalin a whole lot of political legitimacy. A lot of Westerners right now, they're freaking out about figures like Putin. And we could say so many negative things about him. But the fact is, he probably has, in the eyes of Russian people, more political legitimacy than any president that we had in like the last 50 years. Because for Russians that you know were alive in the 80s and the 90s, they have the experience of the 90s, and then they have the stabilization after the 90s. When Putin ran in his 99 campaign, he said it's going to be, the phrase was, a dictatorship of the law. That's a very strong contrast from the experience of the 90s. Xi Jinping, if you were around in China in the 80s, right, and this, let's say you were born when I was born, 1987. Now, in 1987 to 2023 in America, it's not a huge amount of differences. There's some, but it's not huge. In China, 87 versus 23, we're, we're talking about a middle class that was maybe 10% or 5% back then to now it's like 60 or 70% of the people. That is not anything that we could really conceptualize. So that's kind of how th these things work. 
Um, specifically like people like Lincoln, uh, I, I agree with your assessment. And I think it's actually, it is kind of psychologically useful to, on the one hand, acknowledge that yes, Lincoln, for instance, he was clearly a racist, but on the other hand, isn't there something to go back to the idea of greatness? Isn't there something great about a human being who could simultaneously be racist, but also say, you know what, what if in some way I think that I might be wrong? What if my racist feelings uh, should be superseded by the idea that we need to get rid of slavery. That's a separate question, right? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's um, that's what Cornell West, Dr. West, said when we did the mm -hmm. interview. You just have to be very impressed by the trans the personal transformation, which seems to have been authentic. I mean, there is a line. I don't have it. Let me see if I could. You know, what's that guy's? Oh, yeah. I'm going to just read one line. If you'll forgive me, one sentence, it's not mine. I'm not promoting my book. I'm promoting Abraham Lincoln, which is something, it's a, a different order. So on page 303, fortunately, I have a name index, which I created. Abraham Lincoln gives the second inaugural, okay? His, the speech for the second inaugural, very short. Even the Gettysburg Dress is very short. You'd be very surprised. I thought it was a very long document until I started to read uh, Lincoln. So this is what Lincoln says in the second inaugural. Yet, if God wills that the Civil War continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen, the slaves, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. That is to say, now my paraphrase, paraphrase of his brilliant prose, if the Civil War continues to the point that all the unearned wealth that we acquired through slavery will be squandered because of the war, will be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash, every drop of blood that was drawn with the slave driver's lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. That means for all the blood of African-Americans that was spilt by the slave driver. If all that blood was then paid back with all the deaths in the Civil War, and it was 700,000 deaths, he says, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I would say, I'm heading towards 70 years old. That is the single most stirring line I have ever read in my life. Yes. And coming from Abraham Lincoln, if all the money we extracted unfairly from those slaves for 250 years and all the blood 
that was spilt by the slaves due to the slave driver's lash. If all of that is lost, because now it's Americans, whites who are dying in the Civil War, 700,000, not a small number. Uh, he said, it's still worth it because it's right to end the slavery. Uh, that is, it's the moral sentiment combined with the prose. There is an awful lot in that one sentence, you know. And then to reduce the magnitude of what's going on in that one sentence to just hurling a label, racist. Is that history? It's just, just stupid. It's the, just stupid. The last line is, is reminiscent of Herman Melville's Moby Dick, the final line there. Um, the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it did 5,000 years ago. Uh, just to like dwell just a tiny bit more on Stamped. That, that, I, may, have, that, that may have been an impact because, you know, Melville was he, very he, he, he might he might not actually have because Melville went through a period where his last 20 years of life everything that he wrote was out of print including Moby Dick he nobody really knew him that well but until Melville, the 1920s was a, uh, it was known I think I think it was known that he was a public defender of John Brown mm -hmm. so that that aspect of Melville I don't know look I'm completely speculating but that aspect may have been known in any case there are spectacular moments. There's mm -hmm. Listen, you can say 10,000 things about Martin Luther King, but I think that last speech he gave on April 3rd, 1968, that speech on the eve of his assassination, I think that's the greatest speech ever given in human history. I do. I've talked to many people about that. There's nothing really that compares to it. That last speech, I still tear up, and I must have listened to it a hundred times, you know? Uh, so, but he was a very flawed vessel, and he was the first, you know, uh, Martin Luther King was consumed, consumed. He was eaten away by guilt because he had, he had a very promiscuous private life. It was known because his phones were tapped by the FBI. The FBI blackmailed him or attempted to blackmail him. Uh, with that information, and he was consumed by guilt because he felt he didn't earn, he didn't deserve all the praise that was being heaped on him, and he felt he was a very flawed human being, and he was. We're all flawed, as uh, Dr. West says, cracked vessels, but can you deny his greatness in the face of that? No, no, no. Does hurling the label racist, or in this case, the label of adulterer, does that capture his whole life? No. no this comment on, on MLK uh, um, reminds me of, so when I was reading Stamped, the first thing I thought was, okay, so if this book is just going to be this catalog of uh, racial slights, both personal and, and public, going back thousands of years. Wouldn't it have achieved the same exact ends if Kennedy were to, this is the way that I would do it, a poetic introduction 
a poetic conclusion and five, six pages in between where in a very like emotionless fashion, you just go through just direct quotes from all these random figures that you think are totally uh, disconnected, save for the fact that they have, you know, like racial supremacist, supremacist beliefs about this or that. That would have just, it would have hit upon all the notes that he wanted I, and you that, wouldn't have that's, to. Well, that's well, who known. That's who known. I mean, it's not like. No, the, no, I, no I, I understand, but that that could be used as a stepping stone to discuss something else altogether. And an example that I would use is so speaking of MLK and his uh, promiscuity, I remember when I was like 12 years old, 13 years old, and I had just like got on the internet for the first time. I was arguing a lot with like white nationalists and Nazis and the various uh, uh, forums like stormfront.org or whatever. So as a kid, I was actually like already arguing with like random people online. And one thing that would have been very useful to me is something that Kennedy refuses to do in the book. So when it comes to dealing with, uh, let's say, the science uh, of race and racism, the science of white supremacy and whatnot, he alludes to it, but he engages with it not at all, not even a little bit. When I was growing up, I was thinking it would be so much easier for me to argue with these Nazis if I had like an easy way to find some of these arguments online or elsewhere all put together in a way constructed in a way where they would be unanswerable. So the thing where he could have actually been useful in some fashion, he refuses to do I, I because really... pr probably because it's actually it's honestly harder to do that. You would have to like, I don't know, read something about the science, which uh, could often be kind of boring. And also it's like, I mean, to what end? You're just reading science to prove that, that oh. white and, and black people are equal. Like it's just very silly, right? Listen, and he refuses to do that, and it's it's the one useful thing that he could have done. First of all, he couldn't have done it because he has no knowledge of the sciences whatsoever. Yeah. Not the right. I mean, I, I stopped after I stopped science after high school, and I took several semesters of calculus in college, but that was it. Um, there are several things to be said in that. Number one, you're absolutely correct. He just takes it as a wokeism. We're all equal. Let's move on. Um, number two. It's been done. There are a large number of uh, people who participate in what's called racial science, and there's a large number of people who push back on racial science. Uh, go, it has a very long history uh, of those two contending forces of the racial science and the anti-racial science. So it's all been done. Number three, as you say, it's a very technical field. Uh, very few people have the capacity to uh, uh, write about it, let alone, I mean, to understand it, let alone write about it. And number four, in my opinion, it's utterly and totally meaningless as an endeavor. I'm glad there are people who are on the anti-racist front or anti-racialist front, but it's absolutely meaningless because there are no definitive conclusions that can be extracted from this kind of research. Uh, the the case on one side cannot be shown to be completely bankrupt. The case on the other side cannot be shown to be completely correct. And the fact of the matter is uh, most people are simply going to go with their prejudice. They're going to read what they like and they're going to cite what they like. But beyond that, they're not going to be able to make a case. They're just um, going with their prejudice. My own view is that the only way you can refute these 
beliefs in practice is it's the only, you know, it's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When I grew up, which is obviously a long time ago, I remember in high school, I had two friends, uh, Stephen Schlossberg and Scott Addison, and yes, uh, Peter, Ad no, Stephen Schlossberg and Peter Addison. Peter Addison became a successful urologist. Uh, Stephen Schlossberg became also, I think, a urologist, but then he was the director at Yale Medical Center, and he's still very prominent. And they were Ivy League aspirants. So if you were a Jew in high school and you're an Ivy League aspirant, part of being an Ivy League aspirant is you want to be Ivy League in your, uh, in your uh, profile. So what did they do? They played tennis, which was Ivy League. And they played golf. That's what wasps did. You played tennis and you played golf. So this is the 1970s. And we once were in a conversation. And they said to me, you know why there are no uh, black people or African-Americans? I don't remember the term back then. You know why there are no black people or African-Americans in golf or tennis? I said, no. Why? They said, because those sports require intelligence. That's what they told me. Those sports required intelligence. So they were quite committed to the idea that it was intelligence that accounted for, so to speak, the deficit of Black persons in those sports. That was before Arthur Ashe. That was before Tiger Woods. The point being, in my opinion, the only way you can refer, the only way you can refute those sorts of prejudices is by people demonstrating in practice, it starts with an individual, but then you have to reach, so then people say exception to the rule. We know the game. You say, oh yes, it's true. Uh, Arthur Ashe is a great tennis player. Serena Williams is a great player, tennis player. Um, uh, uh, Tiger Woods is a great golf player, but that's the exception to the rule. Aren't these so, people just so low? Ironically, they're so low IQ making these kinds of arguments. <laughs> like when I think of some of the stuff, it's like you are a mental deficient and you're adjudicated by the people's intelligence. In my generation, crazy. one of the most significant proponents of the intellectual inferiority of uh, Black people was Shockley from Stanford. And Shockley mm -hmm. was a Nobel laureate. He was a Nobel laureate. Don't think the two can't go hand in hand. You could be mm -hmm. a, no, a Nobel laureate, and you could be a really a, a, a I don't want to say. See, I but, try but, but, to, but the actual, but the actual mental deficiency. They point to Watson or Shockley and say, "Look, look, if they could do it, I could. You know, maybe I'm. I could get some of their light, some of that halo effect." Well, my point being that you start off with individuals, and then at some point you reach a critical mass where so many people are no longer conforming to the stereotype that it's simply untenable to repeat that uh, stereotype. So nowadays, can anyone with a straight face really say that the reason black people aren't in tennis or golf is because uh, those uh, sports uh, require intelligence? Listen, when they said that to me in the 19, early 70s, I really didn't know how to answer. No, of course, you can make the obvious answer. Well, the reason why is because there are not that many golf clubs <laughs> or golf courses in black neighborhoods. And there weren't at that time many tennis courts. 
in black neighborhoods. You know, those were very privileged sanctuaries, a, a golf course or a tennis course. And even if there were, black people couldn't go on them. They really couldn't. Now, maybe legally they could, but the social pressure was so mm -hmm. terrible. They couldn't. Yeah. It was not possible. I remember it. I felt it. You, a black family could not move into my neighborhood. It could yeah, not. I mean, even, even the 80s in New York City, we have so many examples of like black you know, people beat up. I yeah. had a friend, Sydney Poland, okay? Her family moved out of the neighborhood, our neighborhood. They moved out and they sold a house to a black family. Do you know what happened? The whole neighborhood, this is a fact organized a car caravan. No, it's true. To go to Sydney Poland's family's new home to picket them. And I'll tell you a funny story. About 40 years later, you'd say in the last 10 years, I can't tell you exactly when, Sydney, by a strange happenstance, she sent me an email. And you know, said she had read about me in the web here or there and just wanted to say hello. I wasn't sure if my mind was playing tricks on me. So I said, Signe, I wonder if I could ask you a question. I know this is going to sound like the weirdest question in God's earth. Am I correct in my memory that when your family sold that house to a Black family, there was a car caravan from our neighborhood to pick at your home? She said, yeah, that happened. <laughs> That's what it was like back then. Now, it was a mixture. Let's be clear, because we want to get the facts right. It was a mixture of pure prejudice. But the bigger factor, in my opinion, it was the issue of property values. The moment you let a Black family in the neighborhood, the property values went through the floor. Mm -hmm. They went through the floor. My mother, I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to fake the history. My mother was a very decent person, but she would not rent an apartment downstairs. We lived in a two-family home to a black family because of the property values. Property values. So to just get back to where we were, because now we're off on, a, on one of my 10,000 excursuses, I, I don't believe trying to fight race science intellectually has any impact whatsoever. I'm glad there are some people doing it so the race science doesn't have a, a, a clear field. However, the only thing that uh, really refutes it is practice. It's the same mm -hmm. thing with Jews. You know, Jews yep. in the, up for the longest time, they were known to be physically feeble, physically weak. And that was, it became the mantra of Jews, by Jews of the Nazi Holocaust. The Jews went like sheep to slaughter. And every, everyone imagined the Jews being like Franz Kafka with the big eyes and the big forehead or Woody Allen. That's what a Jew was. That was, you know, that was what a Jew was. And it took, for better or for worse, it took the fighting prowess, if we can call that, of the Israeli army to overturn that stereotype. Now nobody's going to say Jews are uh, feeble and weaklings. Now that's how we were depicted. Mm -hmm. As feeble and weaklings, it took critical mass, you know, yeah. <laughs> the Israeli army to refute that. So I don't think it, it really uh, it, it it pays 
to in, uh, to try to fight on that terrain. The terrain to fight, whenever I meet a young black man or woman, and I ask them, are you good in math? And they'll say, yeah, no, I'm pretty good in math. I say, then study math. I say, there's a lot of money out there now for African-Americans who have talent in math. Go into math because you have to overturn that stereotype. That stereotype, and the only way it's going to be overturned is when you start seeing African-Americans winning the uh, math competitions. That's the only way. You may, you may not like it, and you may say it's paternalistic what I do, but I loathe those stereotypes so much that I want to see them overturned, but I don't think they can be overturned Kendi style with bromides, pieties, uh, platitudes. That's not going to overturn or change anything any more than Robin D'Angelo sitting around in a session with white people and quote unquote interrupting racism, whatever that means. What does it mean to interrupt racism? That you're going to take a crowbar into the synapse of a brain to interrupt? I mean, the terminology, the terminology is so moronic. It's so imbecilic that it's just clear there's nothing intellectual going on here. The basic question, which we're not going to be able to answer today, but there's always time tomorrow, as Annie says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Uh, the basic question is the one we started with. How did somebody with no academic pedigree, with no publisher that is going to be a standout, how did he? I'm not saying this, you know, Brianna Joy Gray, who I did an interview with a few days ago, she was suggesting that I was being a bit of a snob or an elitist. I'm not being a snob or an elitist. I'm telling you how the world works. When you go to a friend in academia and you say, I published the book, okay? What's the first question that person asks? The first question. They do not ask. What's the content of the book? They don't even ask what they do not. I'm telling you, I was in academia marginally. They don't ask what's the title of the book. They don't ask anything except one question. You know what the one question is? Who published the book? That's it. That's the only question they ask. Who published the book? If you're in academia and you got a PhD, you know, it's the first question everyone asks. They don't even ask you in what field. You know, it's the first question they ask. Where? Where? So I'm not talking about my personal. As I said to Brianna Joy Gray, my publishers have not been any great shakes. I published a couple of books for University of California Press. I published one book with University of Minnesota Press, which is crap, by the way. Uh, and the rest, you know, it's small. So I would be the last one to say that's a fair ranking because I think I wrote some, you know, decent books. I do believe that. Not great. They're not going to change the course of humanity, but they were decent. They were respectable. 
I'm saying that's how the world works. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking, or the academic world works. So I asked the question, no great academic pedigree, no great publisher, close inspection of the book shows it's sheer gibberish. How did he end up? Andrew Mellon, professor of the the humanities, executive director of a center that's raking in tens of millions of dollars. How did that happen? And that to me, which we're gonna leave for another day, is the critical question. It's not about Ibram X. Kennedy, who is a nullity minus one. It's not about Ibram X. Kennedy. It's about the woke culture that created him. That to me is the only relevant question, the only substantive question, the woke culture that created from a nullity minus one, this veritable cult figure in the United States, be it not just CBS, but all the way from CBS, where he's a paid consultant, all the way from CBS to Democracy Now!, where he's the authority on racism. How did that happen? I didn't realize that he was on Democracy Now!, but go to Democracy I'll, Now! and do I'll a take search. A look. I, I know there's been a. I, I know that Amy uh, Goodman has uh, very much uh, fallen off over time, but let's just touch briefly. I don't think we're going to get to the the, the court case, but um, the the book "How to Be an Anti Racist." So this, uh, I believe, came out after Sam from the beginning, and I think this book it's like a much more kind of personal Kendi, and you see some of these uh, arguments like in very sharp relief. There where, are no arguments in the book. No, I have. Well, well, I, well, well, I, I care I, too I, much I, about the life of the mind. To credit what he has. You know what that book was? You see, you have to know the inside of how our culture works. Mm-hmm. When you have a bestseller in the United States, immediately the publishers start to say it's called to piggyback. Piggyback means if by some miracle you got a bestseller, they immediately want to get a second book out there mm-hmm. because you're going to make money. But I mean, to, 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 I mean, to your point, uh, to like assess, you know, the specifics of what he's saying and why he's being allowed to say what he says, even though there's actually no substance to it. I think this book is is, is even more glaring in many respects. Like, first of all, well, because there's no research. Well, it's, well, it's, it's not. It's, pig, it's but it's but, but it's, it's 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 not just no research. It's that it is so obviously self contradictory and absurd. Even if you're you're very sympathetic to his claims. So, like for example. Um, he starts uh, the book, essentially, uh, he, he goes back and says, all right, so this is an update to the 2019 preface, because since the book has come out, there's been so many attacks on it. He, first of all, he does not deal with any of the specifics of the critiques and B, the only reason why he has this kind of a, almost a half mea culpa, uh, introduction is to essentially say, look, this is my way of doing anti-racism. If you have any other way that you want to do it, even if you're on my side, we're going to reject that. It's either my way or the highway. It's very similar to Robin D'Angelo, right? There's a very kind of sharp authoritarian style. And to uh, the point of like, well, how contradictory can you get before somebody notices? Uh, In in my notes to you, there's this chapter that he has in the middle of the book where – uh, basically, the ostensible reason for the existence of this chapter is to tell the world, look, 
we have all these stereotypes about black neighborhoods in inner cities. And these stereotypes are wrong. It's not actually dangerous. Black males actually have a good time in these neighborhoods. The high schools that we go to are perfectly acceptable. And it's very weird because even if this is the ostensible claim of the chapter, it opens up with the story of this guy that he goes to high school with named Smurf. And Smurf is called Smurf because he's supposed to be so black that he's blue. And the chapter opens up with Smurf sticking a gun in Candy's ribs. Smurf is going around robbing kids, beating kids up. And for his end, uh, Kendi is basically looking around his high school and he's like, there are violent crews, violent crews is in quotes, right? He, it's a direct quote that quote, ran my high school. And he's talking about feeling uh, very romantic about the possibility of joining a gang called the Zulu Nation. He sees their initiation ritual. And then he decides that, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this. So to me, it's very strange. Why would you have a chapter saying it's actually great to be a black male in a black neighborhood? And then every example that you list from your own life are things that many kids never deal with. And my answer is the only reason he did that, he maybe he did know or didn't know that uh, this was contradictory. But to my mind, he did this because he knows since he grew up in 1990s Jamaica, Queens, he's going to have experiences that are pretty different from a generic white person's experience. And it's going to impress them and give him street credibility. It doesn't impress me, however, because uh, as you know, I went to a majority black high school. Every example that he cites, every story that he could give about his high school, guess what? I could give as many stories, if not more than the stories that he gives. So it's not impressive to me. And I could tell just knowing how these things sort of play out that he's just trying to, you know, it's a book written obviously for white people, sheltered white people that don't know any better. That's why he could get away with these examples because they would be so amazed by some of the individual stories that he won't even stop to assess. Well, these arguments make zero sense whatsoever. What is even the point of writing this? Because, and this is another thing. I mean, you talk about this before, but it's like, uh, if we start from the idea that structural racism exists, that slavery has consequences that are going to be reverberating to today, shouldn't we have actual like material examples of this happening? To me, being a black male in the black neighborhood is a prime example of this. If it's actually great to be a black male in a black neighborhood, what are we talking about racism for? If it's as good to be white as it is to be black, what are we talking about racism for? You know? Well, I... Of course, I agree with that. I, I would just say that briefly, I would say, number one, the book was obviously rushed by a publisher who wanted to piggyback, mm -hmm. another publisher who wanted to piggyback. Number two, uh, there's no scholarship in the book. It's just posing and preening. Um, and uh, number three, like you say, uh, every argument he makes in the book is contradicted somewhere else in the book. And that was one of the things I sat down and I tried to demonstrate, that there's no coherent argument here. There's no coherent definition of who is a racist and who isn't a racist. People like W.E.B. Du Bois, who he describes his, Du Bois' uh, brilliant study, The Philadelphia Negro, he says it's thoroughgoing anti-racist, but then when you read the book, it seems to be racist in every sense that Kendi claims is racist. By mm. his definition, by Kendi's definition, the whole book, Philadelphia Negro, sociological study, 
was by Kendi's definition basis. So nothing makes any sense. It's completely incoherent. And my guess is, because I have rich experience in this, I can say that most of these books are never read. I know that for a fact. The very first book, uh, which I parsed and exposed as a fraud from time immemorial, it was impossible that that book was read because it was unreadable. It was unreadable. The, the alleged author uh, was uh, illiterate, even though it's almost certain that person didn't write the book. Uh, then the second book was I parsed and became a national issue was Hitler's Willing Executioners by Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. It was unreadable. It was unreadable. Nobody read it. A lot of these books are social, they're cultural phenomena. They have nothing to do with intellectual or academic worth. And that's why this, we're gonna to have to leave it off here and we can you know, explore it in the future show. That's why, as I said, the only interesting question is, what is the cultural or sociological or political context that makes these books and their alleged authors into phenomena. What is it? And I think there's an interesting, uh, arg uh, interesting point to be made here that it was the woke culture that created this phenomenon ex nihilio, out of nothing, created this phenomenon out of nothing called Ibram X. Kendi. And in a future program, we can talk about what is the culture that produced him. But at this point, I have, an, I have to uh, talk to somebody uh, at 10.30, so I should start getting started. Okay. And, and just to close things out, just very briefly, um, some of the like howlers that appear in uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, he says things, for instance, like, look, I... Uh, I grew up just not reading Shakespeare, and I didn't realize why I didn't want to read Shakespeare, and I couldn't read Shakespeare. Then he concludes, well, maybe it's because I actually didn't want to, and it wasn't useful. So he's valorizing things like, you know, being uh, almost literate. Um, he very uncritically uses phrase like microaggressions. To me, uh, the phrase is incoherent because a microaggression by definition cannot actually be an aggression since an aggression is intentional. If you have some sort of racial slight or a bias in your mind that's not an aggression that's simply uh, a, a subject of well you grew up segregated and you're going to have these kinds of thoughts uh, he says phrases like intelligence is as subjective as beauty that's a direct quote that's wrong because beauty is obviously not subjective attraction is subjective but beauty is an objective scientifically oh, I verifiable I, I, I thing your examples you sent them to me and again you see i think one has to separate out complex ideas mm -hmm. from um, just, as I said, platitudes, pieties, and bromides. The whole question of whether beauty is objective or subjective, it's a very complicated question, especially since the development of the field of evolutionary biology, which is trying to establish that, in fact, there are some aspects of beauty, uh, what they call, I don't know the field at all, but I've obviously I've, I've read here and there on it, you know, things like a certain uh, physical symmetry, uh, which is 
construed as beauty because the physical symmetry is, from the point of view of evolutionary biology, was the result of the fact that people who are physically symmetrical were seen as being healthy and robust physically. And well, that, and not 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 seen like it was. There was a a, a kind of instinct that human beings have. For, yeah, but, well, over time, that yeah, but not a, conscious. Asymmetrical yeah. people were weeded out, and the symmetrical people were weeded in, and then that became conflated with what's beautiful. Look, the issue is very simple. As with intelligence, as with beauty, as with weighing factors in trying to establish the greatness or not so greatness of a particular historical figure. These are complex intellectual concepts that have been the subject of a huge body of scholarly, serious literature, but none of it, none of it, not a jot, not a scratch, not an iota, can be found in anything that Ibram X. Kendi ever wrote or ever even was capable, had the capacity to conceive. He's a moron. He's an imbecile. And we have to have the courage as a person on the left to say, well, you know what? A broken clock is right twice a day. What the right wing has been saying about Ibram X. Kendi is true. He's a charlatan, he's a grifter, and he's a hustler. And with that, nice to speak to you, but I have to take off because I'm going to get a call in a moment and I have to take it. Okay, hopefully next time we could actually speak about uh, affirmative action because your response yes. to Kendi is my response to the John Roberts opinion. So maybe we could explore that. Well, those um, are very, that's complicated because first of all, John Roberts' opinion is not one opinion. Mm -hmm. he, he he prohibits affirmative action, and in the last paragraph, he allows her affirmative Yeah, exactly. Action. We're going we're so, to talk about all that. So okay. it, was, it was nice chatting. We'll talk soon. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.